I'm Marcus Smith with a bonus episode of Constant Wonder. Maybe you heard our conversation with Jackie Higgins but left that feeling like you wanted a little bit more. We've got it for you. She really does bring animal superpowers to life, and here are a few more stories that we didn't have time for in our regular podcast. Jackie Higgins is author of Sentient, How Animals Illuminate the Wonder of Our Human Senses. She's trained as a zoologist and has made wildlife and science documentaries for the BBC and National Geographic. So this Aristotle guy, how wrong was he about the number of our senses? I, I, I get the idea that what I grew up with in elementary school was just a little bit off. Um, it is it is a little bit off. It's true. I feel I feel a little bit bad for Aristotle saying he set this myth in flow. He did. But I also like to think that he would um, look at the science now and love it. Um, he was interested in the big questions and he looked to the natural world for answers, which I think is the best place to look. Um, but he was wrong. Yes, five senses. I mean, nowadays, scientists would argue that we have um, many more than five senses. The senses that we know are splitting and dividing and subdividing. Um, and then there are senses that Aristotle couldn't have known about, secret senses, Oliver Sacks called them, um, senses of balance, of proprioception or body sense. Um, and so nowadays, scientists would say we might have as many as 33 different senses and maybe even more. Um, served by dedicated sensors. So none of this is really describing anything extrasensory at all, is it? It's t it's completely scientific fact. So when I talk of a sixth sense, I'm not talking of ESP or telepathy. Um, all the senses in the book are backed up by rigorous research-based science. And are you particularly good at number 11 of those senses, <laughs> or number 12, perhaps? <laughs> I forget which one that is. Um, but each time I got involved in a sense, I mean, oddly, for it, it does seem counterintuitive, but the two decisions I had to make while writing this book, one was deciding which animals I was going to use to tell us the story about our senses. And the other was to pick which sense I was going to focus on, because I only focused on 12. Um, and I found that when I was writing the chapter, I was getting really to grips with that sense and did a deep dive into it. And I became super aware of it. So each sense while I was writing it was kind of, you know, deeply important to me at the time. So um, let me ask you this. Um, I studied German and Umwelt is a beautiful word in my vocabulary. I just love it. Sometimes it gets translated as just the environment, but I think that's a, a little bit off too because sometimes we talk about the environment as something out there far away from us. It's a, kind of the cosmos almost. But Umwelt in German is just like the, the world that's immediately around us and touching us. I, I just love that word. Uh, you, you make reference to it, and I'm just wondering if that would help us talk about uh, the, the sensory uh, realm in which we all individually operate. Yes, um, it's a beautiful world. I'm like you. And it was um, coined by an aristocratic German um, over 100 years ago. Um, and it doesn't, it, it, um, it is, there is no equivalent in English, um, but it's a really important word because it is the slice of the environment that we can sense. So my, if even in this room, I mean, there's not very many animals other than me, there's my whippet under the desk, um, but my whippet has a very different umwelt to me right now because his senses are different. And so basically 
in an environment, um, that environment will be experienced sensorially. The, the, the animals have different senses, so it'll be experienced sensorially different between the different species, and they will have a different reality. I mean, Umwelt reminds us that what our experience of reality is not, it's not, it's just particular to us. My experience of reality is probably slightly different to yours, but certainly different to my whippets um, and certainly different to an octopus. Um, so yes, it's, it's, it's a word that is full of possibility, full of surprise and possibility. And I wish there was a, an English equivalent. Maybe we should coin one today. <laughs> well, okay. At what point did it occur to you that you could explore our human experience of the world that surrounds us most immediately, that you could benefit from making comparisons to the realities of animals as they're experiencing maybe proximate spaces, but with their own senses? Was there a time when you just said, oh, this is a great lens to look at the problem with? So um, I'm a zoologist and I trained in zoology at university. So I, I studied, uh, my tutor was Richard Dawkins, um, who wrote, had written The Selfish Gene and very many books and has since written very many books. Um, and I have always been interested in zoology as a mirror to um, better grasp ourselves. Um, so all of animals, I think of as our, as our kind of um, relatives, distant relatives, distant cousins. And so this kind of wider perspective on our species, I think, enables us to see ourselves more clearly. So I've I've always used this zoology as a, as a mirror to better understand myself in a narcissistic way. So there's this wonderful quote by Leonardo da Vinci, which I uh, quote at the beginning of the book. Um, and he said, we look without seeing, we um, hear without listening, we touch without feeling, we smell without awareness of fragrance. And um, it's this notion that, um, Senses, we, we um, undervalue and underappreciate our senses because they circumscribe every waking moment. So every Monday morning when we're dragging ourselves out of bed and pouring ourselves a cup of coffee and, you know, kind of bracing ourselves the week ahead, every boring bit of that is circumscribed by our senses. And I think, so the animals uh, um, enable me to get a little bit of distance on these experiences and to reveal us for the marvels that we are. So if you look at an animal like the peacock mantis shrimp, or if you look at one of these goliath catfishes, and, and you consider its capacity to sense the world, uh, do you immediately say to yourself, well, I might have something like that sense, or do you just uh, do what I would do, which is suddenly find yourself in, in a position of envy, great envy? Absolutely great envy, because um, always, and to start with, because these animals are extraordinary in their sensorial abilities. They rely more on that sense than we do. That sense performs a lot for, more for them. Um, but take the catfish. Uh, so this is the icon of taste. It's a creature that doesn't have a tongue as we know it. Um, its body is essentially its tongue. Its body is covered in taste buds. Scientists call them swimming tongues. And when Yella Atoma, who is um, a, sci a scientist, a marine biologist, looked at the catfish skin underneath the microscope, he decided this on this madcap adventure to count every single taste bud, how many taste buds were on the, the outside of a catfish. He was struck by the similarity of the catfish's taste buds or taste cells to ours. Um, 
And he said it reminds him, it was a reminder of the fact that the catfish and we share some um, ancestor deep in time. Uh, our, our taste system is inherited from our fish-like ancestors. Now, what are the barbels on this? I guess they look like whiskers. They're the whiskers. So uh, touch also is very important for these fish. So they tend to live, I mean, the, the fish that I, the catfish I chose to study was the um, Goliath catfish, um, simply because he's so vast. So I love the idea of this vast river monster um, swimming through the black waters of the Amazonian rainforest. So these waters are so dark, the fish can't rely on eyesight. So it has these barbels, these whiskers, the cat's whiskers, which it uses to feel its way but densely packed on those barbels are taste cells, much like those on our tongue, and all across its flanks are taste cells. So uh, Yella decided to count every single one of, uh, of those tastes, uh, not on the Goliath, thankfully. I think that would have taken him, <laughs> I mean, that would have exhausted his patience. <laughs> so let me get this right then. A catfish has taste buds that correspond to our taste buds. It's just that ours manage to be um, kept within the mouth and, and theirs are all over their body? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly that. So there's a conservancy of biology and physiology that's exhibited by the fish, very similar to what's on our tongue. And that's evidence of our um, deep connection, our evolutionary um, link, the fact that they are our distant cousins. Now, if I were a catfish, I would be living in an umwelt, in a, that immediate proximate area around me that is kind of muddy and uh, clouded. The water, If the water is cloudy, I might not be needing my eyes to the extent that I would if I were a catfish living on land. Uh, so is, is there sort of an evolutionary then uh, uh, understanding of of the preference that catfishes kind of had for, for putting their taste buds on their exteriors? So absolutely, it's an evolutionary, it's a solution, an adaptive solution to the problem that the catfish, the catfish faces. So the catfish finds itself in these black waters. Um, I think it's also because the leaves which fall from the overhanging branches soup up the water and dye the water. So vision is, is um, complicated for that creature difficult, it's dark. And so the catfish is presented with a problem, how else am I going to solve the issue of tracking my prey? And that's when um, the taste buds are the fish's evolutionary solution. So maybe I'm jumping a little bit too far ahead here, but it, it kind of seems to me, given that quote that you gave us from Leonardo da Vinci, that if we underappreciate our human senses, that you are kind of showcasing these sensory attributes of animals like this Goliath catfish to help us maybe, uh, I don't know, to, to postulate that maybe we have a range that if, if we're under appreciating what we have, certainly I'm not going to be putting taste buds on the tips of my fingers, but maybe I can expand what I do on a daily basis. Is this practical in terms of understanding my own sensory experience to, to look at the fish? On a day-to-day -day basis, I think what it gives you is it gives you a better understanding of how your taste system works. It's, I mean, taste in the animal kingdom is, is extraordinary. It's not just the catfish, by the way. Um, lobsters uh, taste through their feet and sea robins, which are these beautiful fish, taste through their fins. I'm not suggesting that um, we adapt ourselves to be able to taste through our fingers or taste through different parts of our body, um, although 
who knows, some people might, <laughs> might be interested in that as an idea. But to me, it's more, um, I'm interested in this connection that we have with animals. Um, the, continually, the book reminded me, when I say this connection we have with animals, we are an animal, but we're so often placing ourselves apart. And everything that I learned in this book reminds me of these, that there's more to unite than divide us. I recently had a chance to visit with an absolutely astute practitioner of echolocation, a blind man, Daniel Kish. And uh, he kind of opened up for me a real appreciation for the fact that I have underutilized capacities in my sensory experience because I don't rely on my ears to get around as he does. That does not necessarily mean that I don't have a potential range of of applying my, my sense of hearing. And I, I kind of wonder if there isn't some aspect of this comparative analysis of yours, if, if animals are like mirrors, that you're advocating for uh, some kind of greater engagement uh, on our part with our own senses. Absolutely. Um, he's done extraordinary work um, making people aware of our hidden potential when it comes to hearing. Often, by the way, I sometimes think that we're not consciously using it, but subconsciously we are. Um, I was walking down a corridor with a scientist and he was explaining how with ease we can learn um, to use echolocation. Um, even sighted people, if, if their sight is removed, you quite quickly pick up this ability to echolocate. I mean, um, Daniel Kish has developed this to an extraordinary level. But this chap was explaining also, as we were walking down a corridor, as I heard my feet um, hit the hard surface of the floor, that I knew that the, there was a wall coming up. So we were chatting and involved in each other, but I knew already there was a wall coming up. Um, so I think we are using these cues all the time. I mean, I think it's only when things go wrong that you realize that there's an issue. It's like listening to a stereo film when the stereo is not quite right. You know instantly when, when something's awry. You mention a word, uh, once again, this is a German word, Zug und Ruhe, which translates roughly as a restlessness of migration. There are certain times when a bird, uh, they've done experiments. Could, could you describe what happened there in terms of sort of a sense of timing that, that might be innate to a bird? Yes. So this migratory restlessness. So when um, at a certain time, time of year, the birds get very restless to basically take to the wind and head south or north or wherever it is that they're trying to, to head to. Um, scientists have now done these studies with birds that have Zugenrohe. I do love the German language. Um, and proven that they are using um, cues from the uh, Earth's um, magnetic field. And what's extraordinary, by the way, with the research that's coming out now, the big debate is, where is the sensor? And there's some incredible research uh, being done on the bird's eyes and this protein in the bird's eyes, cryptochromes, and it involves quantum physics. And so it's become known as the quantum compass. And they're getting incredibly close to proving that likely these birds are seeing the magnetic field. Um, due to quantum effects when they are flight on their cryptochromes when they're flying through changes in the magnetic fields. So you can imagine the godwit as it's flying from the north down south. It can see the sea. It's got a visual kind of read of like a sugimoto, a, a, an endless horizon of sea and land, but then overlaid with that. Imagine it might well also be able to see um, the magnetic field. So it's ex it's exceptionally interesting research. 
So I am very interested in hearing you talk about the fastest strike ever recorded in the animal kingdom. This is uh, a, an animal punching at something or stabbing at something with lightning speed. And of course, I'm talking about this thing called a peacock mantis shrimp. So I know what a wonderful name for it. neither peacock nor mantis nor shrimp. It is um, a mantis shrimp or a stomatopod, this tiny little crustacean that fits in the palm of my hand, incredibly colorful. Um, and Sheila Patek um, at the University of California, Berkeley, studied its punch. And in order to study its punch, it's going so fast that she had to use um, an inordinately uh, high-speed camera. So she shot this punch, filmed this punch at 20,000 frames a second to slow it up so she could see what was going on. And she discovered it reaches speeds of 50 miles an hour and then most extraordinarily does hit with such force that um, sparks fly, which is, ex which is wonderful. And this shrimp consequently has ended up in the Guinness Book of Records for having the kind of packing the biggest punch in the animal kingdom. Um, there, was a, there was a lovely story of a shrimp in um, Britain um, that was at Sea Life Center in Great Yarmouth and it was called Tyson. And so essentially if this shrimp, and, and wonderfully it punched its way out of its um, thick walled glass aquarium, surprising onlookers. But, um, but wonderfully if this shrimp were, um, uh, grown to the size of uh, Mike Tyson, he would certainly punch Tyson, the real Tyson, the human Tyson's lights out. There's a challenge. <laughs> this the, the spark is actually generated uh, underwater? Yes. And imagine if you were punching the lights out of, um, of snails every day. They're now studying what the appendage is made from and um, using it to inspire new armors because the way that that's natural fiber, that natural material has been made is it's super tough. So if our science were to one day reach the point where somebody came to you and said, Jackie, we can implant in you an ability like the Godwit to see that electromagnetic field, would you yeah. sign up for that? I mean, I, um, maybe. I mean, what I would love is just to step inside each of my animals' minds to figure out their whole sensorium or what, what it is, whether there is an experience, what kind of experience it is, um, the octopus, for example. But to plug myself in into a fraction of what it's experiencing, I mean, I mean, for me, I think the real story is the fact that we don't know the senses that we have. I mean, take touch. Um, uh, it was described to me as science's last great sensory frontier. So, you know, some of us look to the stars and gaze up at the heavens and think that's where we need to go. That's where we need to explore. But how about just looking at the skin on our arm? And that's what we need to explore. We haven't figured out that yet. Um, the second chapter uh, on touch, um, the one with regards to the, the, the vampire bat, which I use to ex explain pleasure and pain, um, you, you, you'll discover that there are sensors in our skin that scientists found a couple of decades ago, but they're only now beginning to understand what they do for us. Um, David Julius at um, University of, Ca uh, of California, San Francisco, who just won the Nobel Prize for physiology and medicine this year, it was is he'd studied the vampire bat and he's delineating these little trip proteins, which are sensors in our skin that enable us to respond to different temperatures or detect different temperatures, you know, different trip proteins. He's He's got a kind of ruler as it were, 
you know, of, with all the temperatures that we experience. And he's kind of filling in the gaps of which trip proteins trip um, according to what, what the heat is or what, the, what how cool it is uh, with a sliding scale of pain and a, a sense of burning. Um, so our skin is just, um, so just understanding the senses that we have is where I want to focus. So are these proteins you're talking about, are they in the vampire bat? And if so, what do they do for the vampire bat? So in so he so David Julius studied the vampire bat and he found a shortened version of one of the proteins that's in our skin that's in, in its nose leaf, and that enables the bat to detect such tiny temperature changes that were a bat to land on my neck and it's hunting around for a vein, it can sense where the vein is under my skin from the tiny heat changes. So that's what that trip that um, smaller uh, trip protein does for that bat. You know, I get kind of excited about the idea that there are these gradients, these these uh, degrees of finesse that certain animals have where they can distinguish between just the most minute differences. It makes me kind of feel obtuse in the way I, mm. I go into the world. But but often it's this thing of underestimating ourselves. You know, I talk about vision and we, you know, how many colors do we see? And we spiel off the rainbow. Well, as the mantis shrimp will show you, we see million, a million colors at least. Or smell, which we think, you know, that the, the dog um, is much better than us. And it is at certain aspects of smell. But um, they did this amazing study, um, the Rockefeller smell study, where they asked people to discern between scents and then they did some complex mathematical tallying of the results and they discovered that the human is a human is able to distinguish discern between a trillion different scents so you know we are we are rather wonderful so when you say a trillion you know it's one thing to go count the actual taste buds on the exterior of a goliath catfish but any hyperbole in those numbers for the differentiation of sense? I was told that it was more than a trillion. <laughs> the trillion was the conservative estimate. So they didn't count a trillion different, but they used mathematics to kind of expand on what they had found and come up with a computation. I was like, going back to color and what we see in the way of color. And, and what an animal may perceive in the way of, uh, you know, a, a spectrum of, of color and, and the gradients. You tell a story of people, I believe in the Pacific, who cannot see color, a small population of people. And, yes. and if you would talk about them and describe that group to us, because I think it's fascinating that there is an argument that they have made that they are maybe getting a, a richer experience of the world without color than we do with color. So um, I return to Oliver Sacks, actually. So Pingalap, which is this island um, that was the focus of his book, The Island of the Colorblind. Um, but the uh, there's been research done, I think, since he wrote that book that has identified the mutation that these people have. So it, this tiny island, you know, it's got a high street, it's got a school, it's got a couple of churches, a uh, few hundred people live there or live there at the time when I was doing the research. An inordinate high, an inordinately large number of them have this mutation for achromatopsia, which is color blindness. And I'm not talking um, the red green color blindness, the Daltonian color blindness we normally think of with regards to color blindness. This kind of color blindness is every shade under the sun. So they see that picture postcard island with its green palm trees and its azure seas and the frigate bird with its big booming um, mating call as it ne red neck inflates. They see all of that as um, 
in various shades of grey. And Sachs went over to the island to meet these people with a vision scientist called Knut Nordby, who was also an achromatope. And um, he was very interested to know what these people thought of, uh, what it meant to them having uh, not being able to see colour. They'd never seen colour. Um, because Sachs used to get migraines and occasionally he would lose the ability to see colour and I think it shocked him. For these people, it was their norm. They didn't know what colour was. Um, and Sachs was looking at Nordby's photographs. He took beautiful black and white photographs. And um, Sachs talks about the fact that, you know, consequently, maybe colour blinds us to more of what the world can offer because Nordby was focusing on light and dark on shade on abstraction and um making beautiful black and white monochrome compositions so the, the the first chapter brings up various issues you know the kind of how everyone's subjective experience is a totally private thing it's difficult to know what someone else is thinking but also it talks about the fact that when one sense doesn't quite work normally it doesn't necessarily mean a loss it could mean a growth in another area and, and so that was the, I, the point I was trying to make there. I want to go back to the owl and hearing, uh, because of, of all the things you described there, um, I am just fascinated by something I had never known, that, that that flat or rather parabolic face shape of an owl is part of their hearing apparatus. I was also surprised by the degree to which it amplifies the sound. So they, scientists have done studies on the inner ears of owls. Basically, they did studies, first of all, on the owl's hearing range and discovered that um, a barn owl, for example, can hear 20 decibels below our lowest range. So it's able to hear volumes so well below our range. So the question was how. But when they looked at the inner ear of the um, owl's ear, and the sensory hair cells that essentially vibrate as the molecules move, which is sound and relay um, hearing, begin the path of the owl hearing something. Um, what they found was these sensory cells and its inner ear don't look much more sensitive than ours. I mean, they have a fovea, which makes them um, more sensitive to certain frequencies than us. But generally, in terms of volume, really what makes the difference, what enables that bird to hear 20 decibels below our range is its face, its parabolic face. It's like someone standing on your roof with a big satellite dish trying to catch the signal. And that is the thing that makes the difference. So to hear like an owl, we simply need to walk around with a Victorian hearing trumpet in our ear. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I take a walk from time to time with my children and we pass houses where devices are planted in the yards with things, little contraptions that emit high frequencies. This is presumably to scare away uh, various unwanted animals from mosquitoes to deer that can hear those high frequencies. My children hear the devices. They hold their hands over their ears. They're just completely bothered by it. I'm at an age huh. where it, my the high frequencies are disappearing on me. And, yeah. and uh, is there ever an opportunity in your view to, to be grateful that we, we don't hear as much as an owl hears? Yeah, <laughs> always. <laughs> I live in London. Um, true, but also the other lovely thing about the owl story in continuation of your story and our hearing uh, aging, um, presbycusis, which is age-related hearing loss, which um, we're, we're headed that way, um, 
is a real problem. And what's amazing about the owl ears and their sensory hair cells is they're so similar, again, to ours. Again, recap the catfish and taste buds. Um, they're so similar that scientists are looking at them because the extraordinary thing about owl sensory hairs is they rejuvenate. And they did this lovely study in Germany studying owls and whether how uh, badly owls hearing ages. And they discovered that owls hearing does not age whatsoever. Their, um, their uh, I think, uh, elderly owl, I think she was about 20, I don't recall exactly, Vice, um, who only recently passed away, her hearing was as good on the day she died as it was on the day she was born. And so um, scientists are genuinely looking at owl ears and owl sensors, um, hearing sensors to perhaps return our hearing, whether we want it or not. So uh, owls are just famous for their ability to follow their prey based on sounds that are beyond the range of what we can hear. And then there's also the aspect of the physiology of their feathers that allows them to fly undetected by people who can't hear them. Yeah. Another that that was the biomimicry story. Um, scientists at Cambridge University and beyond have been looking at um, the physics of um, how the owl dampens the turbulence of the air molecules rushing over its wings when it's mid-flight. And so the idea being that if they can replicate that and transpose it onto um, the planes that crisscross our planet and create noise pollution or fans or computer fans, anything that creates noise pollution. This is, this is, a, this is a wonderful example of biomimicry um, eradicating noise pollution, courtesy of the wise owl. So, so now that you talk about noise pollution, this leads straight into something else you have considered and talked about in the past, which is the idea that it's conceivable that a sensory organ in some animal here or there might be able to pick up something like the humming of atoms as they vibrate? <laughs> that was a study done. It was a study done on um, the sensitivity of our ear. Again, um, again, that subtext of we are more marvelous than we realize. Um, and that lovely example of um, Cage um, going into Baronek's box um, in his search for silence. Um, You're talking about John Cage, the composer. Yes, yes, exactly. And what was the box, the Baronek's box? Baronek's box was built, um, I think, uh, during um, World War One, World War II, I now forget. But essentially, this box insulated um, against external sounds. And so the idea being you could step inside this box and hear silence. Um, so it was completely insulated from the outside world. And so in that box, there should have been silence. But what happens when you step into these noise reducing chambers, and they exist now, they've been rebuilt in different different places. Microsoft has one, and it's even quieter than Baron Xbox was. But what happens when you go in search of silence, like John Cage did, is you never find it. There is no such thing as silence, unless you're in space. And the truth uh, it came forth that he could hear high frequencies that were attributed to his the functioning of, of his own internal nervous system? Did, did, did I get that right? 
Yeah, that's what they said. Now, that's not necessarily scientifically verified, but that's what Cage was told when he came out of the box and said, what was that buzzing I was hearing? And other people have said, oh, I could hear my scalp. I could hear my skin of my forehead move across my scalp or everyone hears um, their heart beating. But then as they kind of strain that away, they begin to hear, you know, I, I'm sure I'd hear my joints moving. And then what's extraordinary is sometimes you get um, hallucinations, auditory hallucinations, what Oliver Sacks refers to as release hallucinations. So when your brain is not being stimulated as it normally is by sound or by, by whatever, you then also can, it can make things up. So that's another reason for why there isn't silence. Our brain can't cope with it. Uh, he, he talks of, Sacks talks of musical hallucinations in that brilliant book he wrote on music, I think Music Philia. Um, and he talks of how when people lose their hearing, they sometimes start to hear music. Not long ago, I read about the second sleep where the human uh, at nighttime, rather than naturally sleeping eight hours, uh, some say that we kind of, we, we evolved to have two sessions of sleep, you know, three hours interrupted in the middle of the night, get up, do something, go back to sleep. Now, the reason I mention this is because I heard of an experiment where uh, people were put for maybe months at a time in, a, in a, an environment where they would never see the time of day. They wouldn't know if it's day or night. And, and the idea was to see if they had some kind of internal clock that would uh, trigger sleep or, or, or trigger wakefulness. And, and you talk about spiders kind of of sensing time or having a, a sense that I guess would be internal too. Yes, absolutely. Body clocks. And, um, and this, this story, which is, it's one of my favorite chapters. And it came to me from Ron Douglas, who was the scientist who I had been talking to with regard to the spookfish and with regard to our sense of dark vision. And we were talking about the sensors in our eye and Ron said you do realize there's another light sensor in our eye I was like no what what I haven't heard that and so he told me the story of Russell Foster um Russell Foster proposed this other light sensor in the eye and scientists were outraged I mean the ophthalmologists had decided that the eye was or thought that the eye was the best understood organ in the human body and the notion that there would have been a third light sensor was just preposterous but Russell went off and did the science, did impeccable research and persuaded everybody without doubt that there is another sensor in our eye. It's a light sensor. It doesn't lead to any conscious perception, any visual perception. But what it does is it cues a place in our brain that essentially is the master body clock in our brain. And that then cues every single cell because every single cell in our body has a body clock that keeps everything. It's like the conductor and the orchestra. It keeps our body marching to time and to the passing of night and day. So those people who climbed into caves for six months not to see the light and day, they cycled regularly, roughly regularly. But what happened was they lost or added an hour either side. And so they would be clocking fewer days than they would have been were they on the outside where sunlight was basically keeping their master clocks on time with the passing of night and day. Do you like the idea of our human bodies 
wanting, I'm going to say having a desire even, or, or, or a, I don't know, a proclivity, a propensity, or just some kind of direction to, to be in sync with the orbit of the earth and the rotation of the earth and the position of the stars and the sun? So it's biologically imperative. I mean, it's biologically imperative that that we have, we're creatures of habit. I mean, our bodies are tuned to anticipate food before we eat, need sleep. And so being framed by a time schedule essentially keeps us choreographed and working well. So it's imperative that we are cued to this time frame. And every creature on earth is cued to this time frame. I mean, think of a jungle waking up um, and going to sleep. Or fish eyes, apparently, they change what they see according to night and day. The circadian clock and physiology is fascinating. And when it doesn't work, when you've got people who are blind, um, they also, Russell proposed, and we now accept, they are time blind. And he said it's super important that people who are completely blind still expose their eyes to light. So in the hope that, yes, their rods and cones might not be working, but this other cell that he discovered will work and he, they still can track day and night. I mean, blindness, the causes of blindness are varied, so that won't always work uh, and didn't work for the man who's in my book because his optic nerve was sliced and therefore he is is divorced from the ability to sense night and day and time blind. So he relies on a clock now. I'm going to go for a little bit of autobiography here. You've been through this process of, uh, it is not an easy overnight task to present a work like this, this book. Um, in, in, if we were to look at your life before putting all of these thoughts together and your life after, is is there some pre-sentient and post-sentient? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there some <laughs> and a moment of loss of sentience while I was writing. <laughs> I'm just going. I don't know if there's going to be. If you anticipate that that your own quality of life is going to change for knowing these things. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, I have a deeper engagement with my senses and with my body than I did. Um, I think I said earlier that each each chapter that I kind of uh, each chapter that I was researching became my uh, focus. So yes, I do look at the uh, I look at the world now with new eyes. Um, I sense it with a new nose, taste it with a new tongue. I do. I'm much more aware aware of this sensory engagement, and that's part of the message really of the book. Um, we conduct life at such a fast pace and we let these things fly by. And the book is asking us really to slow down, consider and enjoy um, what it is our bodies uh, can do for us. So it, just in a real concrete way, if you were preparing the chapter on the owl and then you got a good night's rest and then you took a walk the next day, were you consciously uh, attentive to your sense of hearing in, in, in a more... Uh, pronounced way. Absolutely. So what the, the one of the big messages of the chapter on the owl is the importance of two ears and how that gives us a geographic spatial awareness. And so, yes, I'd kind of close off one ear and I'd listen through the other and figure out how that changes my perception of the, what's around me. Yes, it's a, it's a, it. I definitely um, engaged more with every single sense that I was then writing about, and because I was fascinated about it, uh, that's why I wrote about it. 
I keep sounding a little bit like a stuck record, but we are quite extraordinary. I mean, it's back to that we that Leonardo da Vinci quote, you know, we look without seeing, we listen without hearing. And I think that I'm asking everybody to slow up and engage um, with our senses and engage with our perception of the world. And the other big message of the book is, is about our broader family tree and the other uh, animals with whom we share the planet. And it's a message of positivity and joy in a way, and a message that there's more to unite us than to divide us. If you advise that we slow down in order to get more, in our modern world, that just seems like a bit of a paradox because everybody wants us to speed up because they say by speeding up, we'll get our bucket lists finished. Is there a, a hint of paradox at all in this slowing down to get more? Yeah. Yes, there is. Absolutely. You're right. But you do get more. You do get more. And I think it is important that we slow down. We don't notice the journey if we don't slow down. Of This is the, the most unfair question. And it's, it's, it's a really, uh, I mean, it's like a, this is puerile uh -oh. of me to do this one. This is childhood. <laughs> Favorite animal from, the, from your book. <laughs> oh, I've got 12. <laughs> um, we haven't talked about the star-nosed mole. I mean, he does deserve some of the limelight. Um, he is this extraordinary creature who sits in your hand. and But he's ferocious and terrifying if you're a worm. Uh, he's in the Guinness Book of Records for the fastest forager and eater. We knocked the cheetah off its perch, if ever it was there. Cheetah's still the fastest, but this creature can identify, capture, and eat, gobble up its prey in faster than a blink of an eye. Um, and it does it through touch. It has this extraordinary, these engorged little kind of tentacular star on its end of its nose. I loved him. His, it, it's got the same kind of uh, sensory cells and its stars in our, in our fingers, except they're so densely packed that you've got six times the sensitivity of your hand squeezed into your fingertip, which is what Ken Catania, who has studied these creatures, um, he knows them better than any person on earth, I think. And um, that's what he says. So, so the star-nosed mole is rather wonderful. And then I can't resist an octopus. <laughs> um, I sent actually the book to Craig Foster, uh, who, um, who is the man behind my octopus teacher, if you've seen that wonderful documentary. Um, and Craig said some very generous words about the book, which the publishers uh, put on the back. Um, but the octopus and the ch that chapter was I particularly liked because I engaged with what that octopus's experience might be of the world. Um, Peter Godfrey Smith has written a wonderful book called Other Minds. And he he is the philosophers who dare to kind of cross the Rubicon and wonder what's going on in other creatures' minds. You know, ever since Thomas Nagel, they've been asking, what does it feel like to be? And I do that with the octopus a little as much as we can, guided by science. I absolutely promise you this is my last question. <laughs> <laughs> are, you, are you particularly sanguine about the idea that we can bridge in some fashion or other to something so exotic, so different from us, so uh, utterly alien to us, that, that we, we don't have those sensors on our nose like the star-nosed mole? Uh, we don't have the platypus uh, duck bill that can sense electrical current. We don't have the, the brain, the neurology of, of an octopus throughout our bodies. Can you, can you imagine 
that we will be completely stymied by, by our attempt to relate to such creatures that are so different. Yes, I mean, this is what Nagel would have us would, would, would said that, you know, we're trapped within our own subjective um, experience, that it is impossible to, to imagine, even guided by science, um, it's impossible to imagine um, what it's like to be something else. I mean, another human at the, its most simplest level. But then when you take these extraordinarily sensorial, diverse creatures like the, the star-nosed mole or the octopus, the octopus, which is so other to us, um, you know, it's most of its neurons, most of its brain are in its arms. So it's, it's, um, so it's, so it is, it's, it's probably impossible to know, but it's just delightful to imagine. And, and it's important for us to realize that our reality is not the only reality and that there are many other realities, not simply because that's philosophically mind blowing and joyous in my books, but also because it's informative. And when we're dealing with these creatures, um, we need to understand, if we're trying to understand them, we kind of need to understand how it is they're perceiving the world and into relating with the world. Um, so so it's important, it's really important to do. Um, Peter Godfrey Smith calls them thought experiments guided by science. They're not doing science, but they're guided by science. Um, but I think it's it's irresistible and it is important. Jackie, it's been a delight. Thank you so much for doing this for us today. I, it's just what a wonderful book. I've just enjoyed it. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. And I hope it's lovely to know that Sentient has reached American shores. Um, yeah. I've had such a warm reception. Um, I can't wait to come over as well when when um, maybe sign some books and meet yeah. some people and who are who are reading. But it's it's thank you so much for having me on the show. Jackie Higgins is author of Sentient. How Animals Illuminate the Wonder of Our Human Senses. And I'm going to leave you with a bonus bonus. It's a story she told me as we were saying goodbye. I was just in Africa and I was watching elephants. We, um, we were sitting around uh, a fire. So it was, consequently, everything was quite dark beyond the circle of the light. We heard a branch crack and someone got a torch and shone it and literally couple of meters away was a huge family of elephants completely silent you know they were walking around and they just cracked a twig they were completely silent but i knew that they were talking to one another it's just that they were using infrasound or one expects that they were talking to one another we can't hear it but just because we can't hear it doesn't mean they're not communicating so just you know some knowing something like that is incredibly important <laughs>